Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. Hey, we're here today with Luann Brizendine talking about differences between the brains of male and female teenagers and what parents can do about it. Luann is an endowed professor of clinical psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, and the co-director of the UCSF program in sexual medicine. And she is the author of numerous books, including the two we're going to be talking about today, The Male Brain and The Female Brain. We're going to be talking today about specific areas of the female brain that change in size during the teenage years, as well as specific areas of the male brain, what that means, why that happens, the role that hormones play in all of this, specifically testosterone, as well as various other hormones. We're going to look at the different ways that the male and female brain drive us to connect with each other, as well as deal with emotions, anger, sadness, depression. We're going to talk about the brain science behind status, popularity, dominance in both girls and boys, what breakups do to the brain. And we're going to talk about what happens when a girl bursts into tears and why it's so difficult for men to handle all of these topics and a whole lot more are coming up on the show today. Luann, thank you so much for being here. You certainly have done a lot of work in this area, and you've written numerous books on all kinds of brain-related subjects, and specifically, I just read both your books on the male brain and on the female brain, and there is so much helpful, fascinating information in here. It really got me wondering what inspired you to get into this. You talk in the book about having sort of a moment of realizing that so much research was being using male animals and male brains as kind of like the default and that there was just really a lack of looking at the female brain at all. Yeah. So what, what you need to know is that the research into the brain for many, many years, most years up till about recently had been done on the male brain because the male brain in animals and male brain, the human male brains and male bodies in general. So a lot of research, medical research and all kinds of research has been done mostly on males, which has really kind of left the female out and no knowledge about the female brain or female body out. Yeah. And it's not entirely a nefarious reason that they've done that. I remember raising my hand in medical school when I was about my second year of medical school and asking the professor, because he just explained this really interesting study on something and said, well, the male's this, blah, 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 but he didn't mention the females. So I said, what about the females? He says, oh, 
we don't study the females because their menstrual cycles will just mess up the data. So it's kind of like, I thought like, whoa, <laughs> but, 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 but no, but it's like, I look back at myself and I'm embarrassed because I thought to myself, oh no, no, no. As a scientist, I thought, oh, you wouldn't want to mess up your data. Of course not. So oh, yeah, I, did, right. I totally bought into it too at that time. So it didn't like occur to me till later in my career that like, whoa, this, th what's wrong with this picture? This something's wrong with this picture. So yeah. of course, there's another reason that human females are not studied so much um, in lots of types of medical research is because the chance of like, if the female may be pregnant, then, um, then you may injure the fetus. So it's not just uh, messing this data up with the menstrual cycle. It's also that the female be pregnant. And I remember asking a male scientist once I said, well, why don't you just ask them if they're pregnant? Oh, that is a good question. Or why don't you just do the pregnancy test before they come in and, you know, you know, and, you know, so they, they had never even thought of that. I thought like, wow. oh my God. You're anyway, right. You, we you, could do that. <laughs> There's also interestingly like this assumption sort of woven into that line of thinking that they're kind of interchangeable. Uh, yeah. The female brain is pretty much just the same as the male brain, except it's a little more harder to study because there's all these fluctuations going on every month. So we could just kind of eliminate them. Exactly. So anyway, I got very interested in my undergraduate years in hormones and behavior. So I was at UC Berkeley in my undergraduate years. And okay. it was at, at the time when all the studies that they were doing were like discovering the actual effects. And remember, the, the purpose of a hormone is to cause a behavior. For example, your hunger hormones make you eat and your sex hormones make you want to have sex. Yeah. So the purpose of a hormone is to cause a behavior. Okay. And of course, you know, I was in my early 20s and I, I thought they were studying the testosterone hormone and how it caused sexual interest and sexual behavior in both males and females. And so I was very interested in that, of course, and I got just obsessed with how hormones in our body change our behavior and make us want to have a behavior. So that's where I got very, very interested in it until I got in medical school. Then I got really interested when I did my psychiatry rotation and found that the depression ratio in male in female to male is about two to one, females being much higher. And with anxiety disorders being four to one, very much higher in females to male. But in childhood, it's about one to one until you enter puberty, until the until age about twelve to fourteen. And I thought to myself, well, what happens in age twelve to fourteen? Yeah, right. Girls What's going start on there? their periods. It's the is the menstrual cycle happens, and when the menstrual cycle starts in puberty, that's when that anxiety depression level goes up and doubles in females to males. So that's when I got really obsessed with it, and I started the women's mood and hormone clinic, and then I also started the teen girls mood and hormone clinic at UCSF when I became a professor there. So that has been my life's work is is looking at the hormone effects in the brain and with a particular interest, of course, in this in the teen teen brain and in the female brain. I thought that was really fascinating as well. The, the statistics that you mentioned on depression and anxiety, and I'm interested to hear a little bit more about that. And there's a number of other things that you point out in your books about some of the differences in some of the sizes of some of the areas of the brain, which I thought were really interesting in terms of things like language areas of the brain are lar larger in females. Especially 
three or four days before ovulation, the females become much more talkative and the circuits in the female brain for running our talkativeness and even our tone of voice. The studies have shown that the tone of vo our tone of voice kind of gets, gets a little bit higher pitched and we sway our hips a bit more and we don't even realize we're doing some of this. It's like also we dress a little bit sexier or maybe put on a little bit more something in hair and makeup. The studies that have been shown that women do that three to four days before ovulation happens. I say that's how mother nature made it so that we will attract the best sperm. That's the whole purpose. The purpose of the female is to attract the best sperm and, you know, procreate, keep the species going. And for you guys, the male's purpose is with all that testosterone that happens, remember it goes up about times 250 between age 9 and 15 in boys. It just looks like, you know, if you looked at the, remember the COVID curve, sometimes they just go like straight up to the sky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That skyrocketing, that's what's happening to the testosterone in the male brain at that time. And his job becomes, I mean, that hormone is driving him to search out fertile females and impregnate them and, you know, get on with procreating the species. That's the, mm. that's the male's job on the planet, according to Mother Nature. <laughs> of course, I, I say that, you know, tongue in cheek, because obviously we had to learn to behave in a civilized manner. But yeah, it goes straight up. It's just amazing. I could not believe this chart that you have in your book showing the um, testosterone levels in males over the lifespan. And it's like, um, it's just like a straight, it goes straight up. It's like a, a cliff. And then it really peaks around a little after age 15. And so that's, that's all going on. And I kind of started to learn about from these books is how those hormones are then causing changes in the brain. They do. They basically start to run the circuits that are, um, I think that happens, and I talk about that a little bit in the book. I remember both of the books in chapter two is the teen brain. So the teen girl brain is in the female brain and the teen boy brain is, is chapter two in the male brain. So they both, if any parents or anybody wants to just check out what's going on, they can just turn to chapter two in either of those books and see what's going on and see the graph that you were talking about kind of going skyrocketing with the testosterone. Although I wouldn't skip the stuff about childhood because it really, I feel like lays the groundwork for what you learn about in the teen chapters and sort of like I found it really helpful to start sort of seeing the big picture of and when you can see like oh wow so that even starts from six months old and start seeing these patterns play out over the lifespan then yeah it just puts things into context I guess absolutely so wait, let's roll it back to like the very very beginning okay let's talk about when sperm meets egg right okay so if the sperm is carrying an X chromosome into the egg it'll be XX that's female if it's carrying a Y chromosome and it enters the egg it'll become XY that's male so at six weeks of fetal life the tiny testicles in the male fetus start pumping out a huge amount of testosterone like male levels of high testosterone it marinates the entire brain and body changing the brain and body into male yeah. and so in the female fetus from the moment of conception on her brain and body develop unperturbed by testosterone. And so at birth, both of them pop out with basically the basic imprinting and circuitry and body type of either the male or female. So the testosterone actually kills off the female uterus, kills off the vagina and ovaries, and that makes the testicles develop. And then, so the female develops, so it's, the default is the female. So the default, the default biology is the female. So unless there's testosterone, it will develop as female. 
And then you write about some studies, I guess, that have been conducted with uh, this condition where testosterone, where um, female babies do have a high level of testosterone. Right. One of the ways we understand how powerful these hormones are at shaping the brain and body during fetal life is from some some disorders. One of the disorders is called um, adrenal congenital syndrome, which is when the adrenals end up making a lot of testosterone in the female fetus, in the male fetus. So the female fetus gets what we call gets a lot of testosterone going on. So she is usually born with a larger clitoris and kind of sometimes they mistake it as, as as being male not anymore because they do the genetics but that, that would be male and she has been her brain has been masculinized by that testosterone from her adrenals so that's called congenital adrenal syndrome and the other one in the males there's a male genetic uh, that causes the the receptors don't respond to the testosterone at all so it's as if he's developing without testosterone. So his genetics may be X, Y, but his whole body and brain will develop along the female line. Interesting. So that's called, you know, it's called androgen insufficient. There's a few of them that are genetic. So that's, we've learned a lot from those um, in terms of what the typical development is and what it is if it's skewed in the direction of more or less testosterone in the male or female. So isn't that cool? I find that such, so interesting. It's really interesting. The the results in that, and those are, you know, that's a that's a whole other area of medicine that I find. Uh, it's called pediatric endocrinology. It's quite interesting. So it's 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 the thing to remember is that a lot of this stuff is laid down by the time we're born, and then the things the things that parents do or don't do to kids, you know, the behavioral the you know we say boys don't cry. I mean, we really try to toughen up the boys, and that's all cultures sort of do do that. Okay. Not all cultures, but most cultures will do that to boys. You probably remember that yourself it was like you know you're expected to kind of man up over things so there's a lot of pressure social pressure to behave in a certain way and that that affects you know the outcome of what your personality is going to be like and what kind of things will be interesting or not interesting to you the same thing with the female so i don't want to downplay that na the nature nurture debate i think the nature nurture debate which has always been pulling against each other i think that 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 conflict is is, is dead because it's both the, it's both the nature and the nurture that makes yeah. us who we are so and even the you know some of the genetic changes from behavioral things of the way we're raised are really really important so we want to understand the basic biology don't we andy underneath all of this in order to know where we're going with some of this and it helps kind of to just be more understanding and to not take things personally and to have kind of a broader perspective i think which is helpful absolutely i think especially for boys as a mom of a boy and i raised a teenage boy too who's now 32 but and i talk about his stuff somewhere in, the, in these books too you know with his permission of course i i told some of his childhood stories and <laughs> his teen stories but i so remember let's go to the onset of puberty for boys now remember that um the average age of the first wet dream is 13.5 in boys okay and that's how we kind of identify when all the parts are working with you know when the testosterone everything is sort of working 13.5 for and that's plus or minus two years 
years. So when that happens, we know that that testosterone curve is going skyrocketing. And the types of things it does for boys, not only does it, of course, make you have wet dreams and have like, you know, all kinds of sexual fantasies, but it also makes you every pair of breasts that walk by, you know, or every, all of a sudden you start noticing female body parts in a whole different way. And that is so normal and natural, but boys often themselves feel like, you know, they've become some kind of perv or something. You know, I remember yeah. one, you know, they kind of feel like you became a perv. It makes you feel like, um, you know, what's going on with my brain? Like all I can, all I can think about is sex or all I watch is girls, girls, butts and breasts. So, you know, it's that, that whole, that whole television screen in the back of the, of the visual circuits in a male brain is turned on at that stage. And the young boy, you know, you know, at that 13, you know, males aren't really ready to handle that quite yet. And I really don't think that dads, I mean, I don't know. Did your dads don't talk about this to their sons no. very much. Did your Zero. Dad, I mean, I see you <laughs> yeah. shaking your head. It's like, did you, your dad didn't tell you this, did he? No discussion. <laughs> yeah. And you have like little sex ed in school or whatever. Um, I think a lot of parents just kind of rely on that, that, oh, they're kind of learning about all that stuff. It really is inadequate. Yeah, it was tough for me because I was a single mom. Of course, I was and I was raising a teen boy. And I remember he came home from school one day and he said, "Oh, we had the we had the sex talk." And the PE teacher, the gym teacher, gave us the sex talk today. And I said, "Oh, really? How was that?" And he goes, "Oh, it was okay, whatever." And I said, "Oh, did they did they that was the one where they talked about all the sexual fun? They talked about condoms and all that kind of stuff." And he said, "Oh no, they didn't talk about that." And so here I am, you know. I hear I am a doctor, you know, and I was blown away that the school chose not to teach them at 13 about condoms. You know, it just felt so, it's felt so wrong to me because of, you know, sexually transmitted disease, all kinds of stuff, not only pregnant, all that. It just seemed like that's the time you, you that's the time you, t- you don't tell them once they're 19, it's too late, you know. So I went out to the store and bought a three pack of the Trojan Inns, a three pack. I brought it home. Then I also went to the grocery store and I got a, sort of medium small size zucchini you know so i brought it home Ah. and i showed him how to roll it down right and take it whatever and it was like i knew it was really embarrassing for him it was really embarrassing for me too but you know it was like really important to do and uh uh, at any rate i remember he had a friend a few years later that came by to borrow one of those Yeah, exactly. That guy's now a Harvard lawyer, but anyway, we all we always laugh about that. But anyway, it's a good thing to do, you know. <clears throat> it's a good thing to do whether you're the mom or the dad, whatever it is. Don't you feel, Andy, that you wish somebody had early on told you about this stuff and told you it's normal? We have this lady on the podcast, Amy Chalet, who does like research comparing parenting in the Netherlands with parenting in America. And it's really interesting. And, and just how much more open parents are there in talking about sex and having letting the kids have sleepovers, but then talking with them or taking the boyfriend and the girlfriend to the sex store to get some condoms and just discuss how does this all work and everything and i think we miss a big opportunity in america by sort of not engaging about those things or making kids feel like they have to sneak and like do these things without having any input from adults 
And it makes it makes sex seem dirty and it makes it seem wrong. It makes it, any, anything that's not talked about is not, you know, anything that's not talked about, of course, especially for teens, they'll, they'll think like, you know, that there's there's something like, you know, wrong about it and that they have to sneak and do it. It's, I mean, we really miss an opportunity to validate all this because, you know, it's going on in their brains anyway, like I talk about, because the hormones are like, they're going, they're skyrocketing. Yeah. And, um, you know, for the girls, you know, the girls three or four days before ovulation happens, they become just, their their sex drive just goes skyrocketing too. And they're going to be flirtatious with boys and they're going to be, their hormones are going to be driving them to have sex too. So, you know, it, it's, if you don't, it's, I don't know, I think the American parents sometimes feel like, if you don't talk about it, then it won't be a problem. Or exactly. You, you know, so yeah, yeah. It's very complicated. It's not. It's not only a. I think it sort of. Um, it makes the. It makes teens in America also kind of just discount that their parents have anything useful to teach them. It makes them just kind of feel like we're you know we're ancient. We're ancient, and we've forgotten so what it's touch, like to be just, yeah out of touch. Yeah. We're, we we don't we, we can't imagine what it's like to be a teen now or something. You know, which is. Part of that is true, but there's a whole bunch of it that's not true, and it has to do with the sexual function that I talk about in, in the books. The testosterone is responsible for, I think, like 2.5 times larger is sexual area in the male brain than the female brain. Right. There's an area that's the technical name is a, gr a very easy name to remember. It's called the, the air area for sexual pursuit, the area for sexual pursuit. And it's part of the brain circuits for males. And it's part of the brain circuits for females too, but it's 2.5 times larger in the male brain than it is in the female. And if you look at ro other types of rodents and stuff, you're looking at the male or female brain, it's like six times larger in a male, male mouse or something, you know, so it's a, let's just say that it's a very important area. And I, like I said, Mother Nature gave you a job, guys. Your job is to search out fertile female, you know, that, you know, so it's one of those things that you can't leave it to chance. You know, Mother Nature couldn't leave that to chance that you were going to do that job because you had to procreate the species, you know. So it's important to understand, you know, the ancient wiring that we still have. I mean, we do live in civilized cultures, so we have all kinds of you know things that we need to to learn to live in a in a society in a civilization but this piece of that area of the brain and that area of the brain is driven by that huge amount of testosterone and remember our ovaries make 90% of our testosterone during our fertile years from the ovary from the little sac that's around the egg as well so it goes up the highest it's like a little if you draw a little curve where the highest part of the testosterone during the month is three or four days before ovulation. So it's day 12, 13, 14. The day we count the menstrual cycle by day one of bleeding is counted as one day one of the cycle. Okay, so day one yeah. of bleeding is day one of the cycle. And then you count forward. Like, so usually the first week of the cycle is the menstrual period, is the bleeding part of the period. And then as the second week comes along, the estrogen goes sky high. It really goes sky, sky high because and it starts to, it's, the reason it goes to sky high is it's going to cause ovulation. So it's going to cause the egg to pop out and go down okay. the fallopian tube and wait for that sperm that's swimming up to meet her, you know. <laughs> but that's why the sex drive is like really ramped up along with the testosterone. For females, they feel much more flirty. They feel like they want to be much more attractive to males. So there's a whole behavioral thing that, that, of course, you see in teen girls all the time. We don't realize it's having this, this, the peak of it is three or four days before ovulation. 
I think it's, yeah. it's good to know that. Remember, if the girl's on the pill or some kind of hormone contraceptive, if you, when you're on the pill or something, it flattens out your um, sexual drive and you don't have this fluctuations. But the, the normal menstrual cycle is going to make you want sex right before ovulation. That's the second week. As soon as ovulation happens then, the egg pops out of that little sac. That little sac starts to make progesterone that then reverses all the stuff that the estrogen did so ah. it starts to it's like in the brain all these circuitries it's the circuit kind of comes out and neurons are connecting with each other throughout the female brain particularly the area called the the hippocampus not the hippopotamus but the hippocampus it's an area that's for memory really important in all of us but it really sprouts and grows a lot with all the estrogen in that second week and then as soon as the progesterone comes after ovulation it starts to tear down all those circuits so the female brain is being built up, built up, built up, and then torn down for the last two weeks of the cycle. And then remember that one day or two days before the bleeding starts at the end is a time we call da 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 PMS, the PMS time, because all the hormones are 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 just dropping like a rock. They're they're decreasing very quickly, and that's what signals the menstrual period to start. But it causes the brain to be. We call it in my clinic. We call it my clinic, Andy. We call it the crying over dog food commercials. <laughs> because it's almost like you can just go into tears or boohoo over anything. Anything can hit you as being like, you know, something that's, you or crying and tears or emotional or the other way too, you can feel like something that's said to you that's just a little bit, you, you take it wrong. You take it wrong or take it a little bit wrong and you just you're angry and irritable and you think your boyfriend is like, you know, is just like, you know, it's like Frankenstein or whatever, you know, it's just, it's, if you're feeling very sensitive to all kinds of emotions during that 24 to 48 hours, about 90% of women have some, some of that, um, in their fertile years at the end of their cycle. We don't, it doesn't seem to have any purpose, not much of a purpose, but uh, I take, I tell couples and I tell, I teach the women that, you know, it's a time that don't just sweep some argument with your partner under the rug at that time. But, you know, I tell the guy that he's supposed to write it down on a little piece of paper and then remember it three or four days later when, you know, she's feeling at her best self again because it's silly to start an argument when someone's just ready to, to cry over the drop of a hat. We're here today with Luann Brizendine talking about the differences between the male and female brain, specifically during the teenage years, and what parents can do about it. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Yeah, who's tougher? Who's the tough guy? When they remember the testosterone levels in males, the one thing we've known in psychology is the biggest difference between males and females in the behavioral dimension. The biggest difference is not only the sex drive is about three to ten times higher in males all during his life than females, but the anger levels in males and females anger levels are the same. But in the male, the anger goes straight to aggression to the muscles. He goes very quickly. I certainly remember what that was like when I had a very bad breakup in my mid-20s, and I remember my son had one as well, and I got to see it through his eyes and male eyes. It's pretty painful. I'm sure you've had that happen to you, too. No one wants to go back there. It's a physical feeling, too, because of the way the brain circuits work. When we get really bonded and we take somebody into our sense of self, we really take somebody into our sense of self. All the things they like kind of become things that we like. I mean, we just take each other in in a, you know, in a wholehearted way. And then when that just gets ripped out, it feels like a whole piece of us is gone. 
Well, I think that the outlet for being angry or upset for males comes and comes out in the muscular physical aggression or physical, ah. like go out, and, you go out and punch a wall, punch a wall when you get upset or something, you know? Totally. And for girls, it just wells up and builds up and it just like comes out in bursting into tears. So that's the equivalent in the girls to a guy like just having it all build up and whatever and punching a wall. You know about the concept, right, of what's called the emotional contagion. So emotional contagion is when you watch somebody else, like look, the guy's watching her burst into tears, and then all of a sudden that hits your nervous system as like a big blast. It blasts your nervous system with all of that feeling of upset. You just yeah. feel the oh. whole upset in the nervous system. I mean, your, so your nervous system gets contaminated by her nervous system being so yeah. upset. And so what the heck do you do with that feeling? So most, some guys that recognize the feeling, they might put their arm around her and say, oh, honey, it's going to be okay, which is probably the best response because it calms both of you down. But some guys will feel like it feels so awful to you that you just want to do anything to get it to stop. So some guys will just like leave the premises or say, I need to go for a run or just like, just like, they'll just bail. They'll just abandon her in her moment of tears. Listen, guys, girls do not like that. <laughs> Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.